understand the truth that God wants from that text, that he intended for that text. But I should, as I'm preaching it at the same time, really be able to preach it in the same feel or mood or tone that it was intended to as well. So if it's an encouraging message, I want to speak in an encouraging way. If it's a hard message, I have to speak in a hard, difficult way. Now, here's the catch. Here's the problem and the struggle is that all of us uh, preachers, believe it or not, have personalities. Now, that's hard to believe, but we do have personalities, and we have uh, really what uh, many refer, or some refer to as a default setting. In other words, there are some preachers that are just more naturally humorous. They get up in the pulpit, and they laugh a lot. Everything's funny that they say. Some preachers are just naturally, their personality, very kind of glum, very sincere about everything that they're preaching, right? And so that can be good and it can be bad. Um, it's okay to kind of be a little, you know, lightheartedness is really good when we're talking about the joy of God, right? If you're really serious and stern, and it's just hard to convey joy that way, right? But if you are preaching on hell, you might not want to crack a whole lot of jokes during that time. That might not be the appropriate way. So we have these default settings that we go to. And and let me kind of explain when I was being trained in seminary and through the doctoral work, uh, we begin to study these default settings. And and, and they said, well, Mike, really what we've heard, we've heard many messages from you now. And one of your default settings is you like to clobber people. And I'm like, okay. In other words, what? He goes, every message is like repent, you know, everything is just, you know, just so hard, and he goes, he goes, you need to kind of really find the tone within the text, and I said, okay, and, you know, kind of some of the examples, for example, I I would come to Psalm chapter 23, and we all know it, right, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he makes me to lie down in green pastures, he restores my soul, his rod and his staff, they comfort me, and so I would kind of begin preaching that something like this, like, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, You don't want because he's all that you ever have, and that's very encouraging. He'll give you all that you ever need. But right now, your wicked hearts are wanting because you're not wanting for him, right? Or when it sits and it says, and lie down in green pastures, say, sitting there, in other words, he'll give you rest. In Jesus, you find true rest. And some of you aren't resting because you're living on your own power and out of the will of God. Repent, right? And so... You get to the thy rod and thy cow, that that rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And and man, what a comforting word that is. I mean, he's gonna fight your enemies and and keep you safe from the wolves and from Satan himself. But don't you think twice that he won't use that on you if you step out of line and get you back into the flock, right? And so there's kind of the key is is he's sitting there going, No, listen, just follow the tone. In the feel of the text, allow it to dictate what the emotion is that you use when you're ultimately preaching that passage. Now, the reason that I bring that up is because the passage that's for us this morning is deadly serious. It's an intense warning. It's hard. There's no way for me to accurately preach this text without it just being heavy, without it just being Thick, without it just being hard and in our 21st century ears for it to sound immensely harsh. So my prayer though this morning is this, is how should we, how should we preach this text? Because here's what I want you to understand. It's not only me that has a default setting, you do too. The hearer does. See, some of you come this morning and there's something you want to hear. Some of you only like encouraging messages. 
And if that's the case, you're probably not going to be here too long, all right? But some of you only like encouraging messages. You know, Joel's your buddy, right? I mean, it's all encouraging. It's all on with Joel, right? You just love that. For, for some of you, you're the opposite. Some of you are like, forget the encouraging stuff. Just give me the convicting stuff. And you come in, and you'll literally say, I don't feel like I had church unless my feet were stepped on. You're spiritual masochist. I mean, you just like to come, and you're like, okay, yeah, great. The joy of the Lord, that's great. But tell me what I'm doing wrong. I like to feel miserable when I leave in this place. So the question is, again, is, so what should we do? Should we adhere to my default settings in preaching the text? Should we, to, should we bear to your default settings? No, what we ought to do is humble ourselves and submit to the tone of the text, not only the point of the text, but the tone of the text, and you to listen and receive it in that same feel, if you will, and I deliver it in the same feel that I think Jesus intended for the text to be preached. And as I said, today is a very deadly, serious tone, a very intense warning. It comes in the cusp and in the context is the fact that Jesus is telling his disciples what it takes and the high, and he's teaching them about the high cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so he's told them several things. Back in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he told his disciples, he said, listen to the crowd, if you want to be one of my disciples, you must deny yourself. You must pick up the cross and you must follow me. Hard words. Then Jesus again says in, in, in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, he says, listen, you guys think it's all about you. It's not about you. He says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you've got to learn to become a servant of all. You can't, you've got to stop fighting for the top. You've got to fight for the bottom. He's telling us the difficulty of what it looks like to be a disciple in Jesus Christ. And now today, he's going to do the same because he's going to instruct us and warn us against two things that we might be, we might be um, guilty of doing. And he's telling us to flee those things. What are they? Well, first of all, Jesus warns us from endangering others to sin. That is, to cause others to sin. Notice, if you will, in verse 45. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, the first question we've got to ask in this verse is, who are these little ones and to whom he's referring? And if you've been around here and been going through us, we might be tempted to believe he's talking about children because of what we saw back in verse 36. There in verse 36, Jesus takes a child and puts it in the center of his disciples and, and, and uses him as kind of an illustration of what it looks like to be the least among them. But we would be wrong, I believe, to think that he's talking merely of children. I think it includes children, and we'll get to that in a couple of minutes, but really I believe he's talking about all common humble believers. He's talking about causing another believer, a young believer, a humble believer, in causing them to stumble in their faith towards Christ. Now, the reason that I believe that's what he's referring to, again, is because of the context of what has just happened. In verses 38 through 41, remember, Jesus rebuked his disciples. He rebuked his disciples because his disciples were trying to impede a man that was casting a demon out in the name of Jesus. They didn't like it. They said, hey, look, he's not one of us. He's not one of the 12. He didn't go to the same seminary that we went to. He hasn't had the same training we have. He shouldn't be doing this. So they tried to stop him. And Jesus said, don't try to stop him. He's doing my work. 
Because I'm doing things that, that, that are beyond you 12, believe it or not. I'm greater God. I'm a great, greater God. I'm doing things with all peoples everywhere, not just with you. So he warns them, hey, guys, don't try to impede him and keep him from doing the will of God. Now, now he moves from that rebuke, and now he's going to give them a stern warning. But the stern warning is not because they've just failed once in doing it, but because now they've failed twice in doing it. Not only did they try to keep this man from doing the work of God, but if you remember back in chapter 8, they tried to do the same thing with Jesus Christ. See, now it's become an epidemic for him. Jesus is seeing that this is something that's consistently happening in their life. When Jesus told them, he said, listen, he goes, the Messiah must suffer many things at the hand of the religious leaders. He will die and he will, raise, he will rise on the third day. When he said that, what was Peter's response? No, Jesus, may it never be. That can't happen to you. Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. He takes him aside and he begins to scold him. And what does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Mark, not understanding it, was aligning himself with Satan because he was doing all he could to keep Jesus from being faithful to the will of God for his life. He was impeding and he was being a stumbling block, not only to this man, but also to Christ to pursue on and to be and to live for him. And so now he gives this stern warning. And the warning is very clear. The warning is against, so just to make sure we're clear, is against inhibiting and discouraging other believers from doing the will of God and therefore weakening or even destroying their faith. That we, that you and I, would not be a stumbling block to others who are pursuing the person of Jesus Christ. He says, if we do, here's the consequence. And then he turns and he says, the people who are guilty of such things, Jesus says that it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and dropped into the sea. Now, the millstone here that he's referring to is not a small little uh, millstone that might be used inside of a house to be able to grind up wheat into flour, but rather literally it's a donkey-drawn stone. This is one of those huge uh, millstones you might have seen before. It's got the hole in the middle, and it's so large and so heavy that it can't be moved by a person. It has to be really moved by a, a, a beast of burden, either a donkey or some type of oxen, uh, something of that nature. And so Jesus is using something that was very real to them, that they knew was very heavy, but it might be, as some scholars indicated, might be even fresher on their minds than at first apparent. In other words, back in Acts chapter 5 and verse 31, we read that there was a group of Jews that was led by a man, uh, by, a man by the name of Judas the Galilean. And the story was that he tried to lead an insurrection against the Romans, and in doing so, his penalty and the men, uh, their penalty was all to have a, guess what, millstone tied around their neck and cast into, the, into a, a deep lake. So some believe that this was fresh in the news and that what Jesus is doing is he is, he's uses an emotionally charged example that they were all thinking about at that time from the front page news to give a, a sober warning to the hearers. Now, stop and think. And I, I remember, remember the tone thing? I got to preach in the, in the same tone as the text. This is flat out gruesome what Jesus is describing here. 
Um, I don't know about you. I know as a child, I feared drowning. It was one of my greatest fears of, uh, of thinking about uh, drowning. And, and, and what we find is we find for the Jewish people, they, were more, they weren't a sea-fearing people. They did fish, the disciples fish, but they were more land people. And, and we understand their fear. You remember when they were, thought that they were going to drown and they cried out, Jesus, do you not care for us in the midst of the storm? And so there's a great fear for them, and why not? The thought for them of having something tied around your neck so heavy and so burdensome that instantly takes you to the bottom of the sea, and as hard as you struggle and as hard as you fight and as hard as you you try to swim and do everything else, you're just falling headlong as fast as can possibly be, being brought to the bottom. You're feeling the pressure of the water just bearing down on you, crushing, pressing in on your lungs, and you know second by second that you're running out of time. Second by second, you're getting less and less hope is happening because you know that death is soon gonna come until the point where just a natural response, you can't fight it anymore. Your mouth opens, inhales for life-giving water, but instead it's filled with salt water that leads to instant death. It's frightening, the picture, but this is the picture that Jesus is casting for them. He's not trying to manipulate. He's trying to shake them up. He's trying to to get their attention in in, in what it is that they're ultimately doing. And so Jesus is warning that, listen, if someone were to injure or to inhibit or to destroy the faith of the simple or ordinary or common believer, that the consequence for them is, would be beyond their very imaginations. He says, remember, he says, it's not that this will happen to you if you cause another believer to stumble. He's saying this is the better option. This gruesome, horrendous, fearful death is better for you than if you impede the faith of another believer. This is serious, heavy, frightening stuff. This is a a, a clear call to to those secular professors in the universities that when we send our kids off and they go into college, that they literally, some of them sit there and say, hey, a fresh crop of new converts. Here they come believing in Jesus Christ, and I'm going to do everything that I can to derail their faith. And so our children and your children go there, and they're struggling, and they're saying that there is no God, and they're doing everything they can intellectually to try to rip them from their faith. This is a warning to them. But it's also a warning to the false religious leaders that we see some on television, not all, some we hear on radio. And here are these men. They're cloaked in in appearance of righteousness, and they speak the words of God and even, even pretend to teach the word of God, but the truth of the matter is they're ever so twisting the scriptures for their own selfish gain to be able to make a living and to profit off of other people, and what are they doing? The same time they're leading those who might even truly be converted or, or might be being drawn towards God, whatever it is, and they shipwreck them. And what he says is, here's the warning. The warning for you is this. It would be better for you to die the worst imaginable death that you could come up with than what ultimately is going to happen to you in the future. And what is he referring to? It's, it's obvious, even in the context as we move. He's speaking of hell. God's justice that they will meet is going to be far worse than anything that they can ever imagine. But if we, just la- if we stop there, I think the most of us would probably sit back and go, hey, listen, I'm good. I'm not a college professor. I'm not an evangelist on television. I'm good. It has nothing to do with me. 
But does this not give a warning to those who are in the church? Does it not give a warning to you and I to the fact that we are accountable for what we say and what we do and how we impact each other's lives? That it really does matter how you're living at home, sir. That it really does matter what you're, what you're saying and where you go and what you do and what you take part in. It, it, it's important. God, God hates when you and I lead other believers in Jesus Christ astray and stump their growth, their pursuit of Jesus. I hear people, and there seems to be a big movement. I hear a lot of people and read a lot about people talking about religious liberty. Right? We're, we're, not, we're, we're not legalists, they say. We've got great liberty in Jesus, and they're right. We do have great liberty for Jesus, but do we not need to be careful in what we do with that liberty not to cause another brother and sister in Christ to stumble? I think that this is what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There, you might remember Corinthians, they're kind of debating, is it okay to eat meat that was formerly sacrificed to idols? Some of them used to do that when they were lost. Now they're struggling. Is it lawful? Is it not lawful? And so Paul sits there and he says, guys, there's no such thing as other gods. There's only one God. You're sacrificing it really to nothing. It's okay. There's nothing inherently wrong with eating that food. He's telling them about religious liberty. But this is what he says. He says, however, he goes, if me eating meat causes another brother to fall or to stumble, because I'll never eat meat again. And I have to wonder, is not the teaching of Jesus here on the mind of Paul when he writes that? That he understands that God hates when you and I interfere with the growth of another believer in Jesus Christ. And let me just say this. All of these examples that I've given to you are, are, are very blatant. Right? I mean, we could even talk in the church where they're very blatant. I remember a young man uh, coming to faith at the first church that I pastored, and I was so excited. And you know how excited new believers are, right? And you get so excited for them because they're so precious. They're just sitting there, and they're like, dude, I just got a Bible. It's got maps in the back. It's got maps. And you're just sitting there going, yeah, that's awesome. And you're so excited for them. And I remember them just kind of learning just some of the basics of the scripture. Did, did you know, and they would say, that, that Jesus had an earthly father, but it wasn't really his father, and they explained those things. And I remember this deacon kind of coming up and go, you know, that's so cute that you're still so excited about the things of Jesus and his word. And he goes, man, I'm going to pray that you keep that. But the truth of the matter is you need to prepare yourself. You won't always be that excited about the things of God. I was at one time, but I'm not, and you won't be either. Those are the things that God hates. When we see that kind of stuff, the professor, when we see the religious leader, when we see people in church do those, they're so blatant. But what I want to draw your attention to is the times when it's not nearly as blatant. Listen to me, husbands, fathers, wives, when your children are growing up and they are young, you have such an awesome opportunity to teach them the things of Christ. It's such an awesome opportunity because, because their hearts are still soft. And they're interested in spiritual things. And, and even if they're not saved, they're still lost. And, and, and they need to be saved, but they're open to it. They're interested in the Bible and, and stories. And you and I in those times need to do all that we can to cultivate and foster a heart for God and, and try, to, try to plant, to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. I know only God can save, but we're co-laborers with him. And it's a wonderful time to move. But instead, what... Moms and dads do that claim to be believers in Jesus Christ. They begin to fill their life with idols. Hey, son, baseball, softball, fall ball, travel ball, 
camping, hunting, everything. And what I'm saying is they're pouring in. And then lots of times, it's amazing, even the summer, and I know we take vacation, but it's amazing. People are just going and they're going and they're going. And you say, where'd you go? Well, you know, we got, fall, we got summer ball or we got summer camp or we got whatever. And what's happening is that kid is not within the community of believers. Please hear me. Please understand what I'm saying. You as a parent are primarily responsible for their health, but part of their spiritual health is to be within the body and be within the church and function within the church. And these pastors are, are, are the, these parents are filling them with everything else. You know what they're filling them with? Instead of cultivating a heart for God, they're cultivating their hearts to accept the same idols as the parents. Son, I want to introduce you to my God baseball. This is what I serve. This is the most important thing to me. Travel, that's the most important thing to me. It doesn't matter what you say. Those actions are leading those young people away from the person of Christ and the creator to the creation. And that we ought to be very careful of. But do you, do you know what truly causes other believers to stumble the most? Here's the greatest sin, and it's the hardest really to be able to identify because it's really doing nothing. It's apathy. Nothing leads young believers away from God faster than a person who claims to be a believer for a long period of time, and they're completely apathetic to the things of God. Sir, your son and your daughter, when they see that you won't be in the word, it's a stumbling block to them. The fact in your affections for the news and the sports illustrated, but yet when it comes to the word, there's no hunger there, there's no passion there, there's no pursuit there. That's the stumbling block. And we can't, we can't, we can't miss this. We sit there and go, and so when you, when you read something like this, you say to yourself, well, if I've done that, does that mean that I will go to hell because I've caused my children to stumble? And here's the deal, just follow with me. It depends. It depends. If I've caused somebody else to, 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 in my life, in the way that I'm living my life, for somebody, another brother and sister to Christ, to stumble, does that mean that my consequence is promised of here of Jesus is hell? Does that mean where I'm going? It depends. You say what? This is a warning of Jesus Christ. And you have to choose one way or another. And you either keep going the way that you go or you repent. If you repent, you demonstrate that you're still in the faith. If you sit back and you're causing your children to stumble because of your apathy of the word, what you do is you repent. And you say, God, give me a hunger and I will pursue you. And I will. That's, what, that's what rages in our heart. God, hell is, hell is the destination I want nothing of. But God, I want to follow you. But here's the idea. If, the hell, if hell is, is your future, then here's what you do. Keep doing what you're doing. I know in your heart, I know, how you, I know how you think because I thought the same way. I thought in my heart, well, this is just not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. This sin that I'm continuing to pursue, that I continue to go on causing other people to some, it's not that big of a deal. And what I'm telling you is you will do that right on into the point until you fall headlong into hell. Second, Jesus warns us from in, in, in endangering ourselves to sin. Not only endangering others to sin, but endangering ourselves. Verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. 
And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, explain, let me explain to you. Mark is reemphasizing here the radical call of Jesus and the radical cost of discipleship. Remember the scripture that I read before in light of the same thing, Mark 8, 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here he's saying, hey, listen, if you're going to pursue me, be willing to cut your hand off, your foot off, and your eye off. Those things that you find extremely valuable, all in the high cost of pursuing me. Now, listen, can I just say, is that being preached today? Is that a common message? No, it's, what, it's easy believism, right? Hey, listen, man, if you just believe that little baby Jesus came and died on the cross for you, you're good. Here's your card, here's your baptism, here's your balloon, here's your hot dog. Go on your way. Don't, any, don't ever let anybody say that you're not born again. But you know what? This is a completely different call. This is a radical call for the pursuit of Jesus Christ. And in the beginning, let me let you understand something. We are not talking about earning our salvation or earning through works. What we're talking about, true faith, which always leads to repentance. When Jesus illuminates our hearts, shows us what he did on the cross for us, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and we understand that he died not for him but for us, for our sins to satisfy the righteous wrath of God towards us, and something stirs and we call out to that, and we see his glorious worth, you know what we do? We repent and turn from that which has nothing to do with Jesus. And we repent from that. And we turn our back on that. And so this is what he's saying. He's talking about this radical call. Now, let, let's be sure so we, people aren't breaking out pocket knives, okay? Here he is not talking literally to cut a hand off. To cut, in, in, in the Jewish law, that was strictly prohibited. Jesus isn't speaking of mutilating or masochism. He's not speaking of any of those things. Instead, Jesus is using a literary device called a metamorphic hyperbole. And so what he's doing is he's, he's using very striking, very strong, very graphic language to jolt you this morning, to jolt me this morning into consciousness, into reality, so that you and I would understand what is at stake here is eternal life. And so he follows through, and then he begins to talk about hands, feet, and eyes. What are they? They are the things that we value the most. I don't know about you, but I value my hands. Don't think about it a whole long time, but if somebody said, can I have your hand? I'd say no, all right? Can I have your foot? No. I, no, I like eye. Let let me have my eye. I'll give you a million dollars for your eye. You might be weird and give an eye. I ain't giving my eye for a million bucks, billion bucks. I'm not doing that. I'm staying with my eye. And you say, well, you got another one. Yeah, but my luck, something will happen to that eye, right? And I won't see anything. What good is it to have something and I don't have any eye? You know, it's not going to be any good. What good is something if I can't touch it? I got no hands or no, no feet. So he's talking about these things that are infinitely valuable. But what he's saying is, listen, you find these things of such great worth. He says, but I'm telling you, there's something that's of greater worth. He says, and what you need to do is be willing to give up what the world views as infinitely valuable here to obtain what is infinitely valuable there. So what is it that's infinitely valuable? He's already used the word, the phrase several times, the kingdom of God. Eternal life, and more specifically, guess what? The person of Jesus Christ. He says, guess what? 
willing to be able to do this, willing to cut off a hand that's going to lead you to continue on in sin. Because it's better for you to just cut that hand off. I know that it seems like a high cost. I know it seems like a high call, but I'm telling you, the end is worth it. The end is worth it. You feel like you're missing out. You're not missing out on anything that you sacrifice here. And he says, but it's also because of the alternative. The alternative is what? He says the alternative is if you choose to stay in your sin, if you continue to pursue a life of sin, if you continue to hold on and and view and, and, and go to those things which are sinful and cling to them, he says the alternative is hell. Now, hell was implied in verse 42, but now he speaks and he uses the word three times. And the Greek word is actually the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna was actually a physical, literal place found known as the Hanan, found in the Hanan Valley, Hanam Valley. It was a steep valley southwest of Jerusalem. When you look in the Old Testament, you read about it during the days of Ahaz and Manasseh, two very wicked kings, that their wickedness had grown so great that they begin to offer up human sacrifices to their god, their false god, Malach. And it became just a horrible place. Later on, Jeremiah comes to the scene. Uh, King Josiah comes and puts an end to that practice and, and leads Israel to repent against that. But what do you do with land that is a place that you sacrifice people with? Well, Josiah turned it into a dump, into a garbage dump. What else were you going to use it for? It wasn't good for anything else. So even to the day of Christ, some believe that that place, that area was used as a dump for people to bring their trash and heap it up. And so what we find is when we look through the scriptures, we find that for the Jewish people, Gehenna, that place, that garbage dump, where fire would constantly be burning to burn up that trash and worms would be working its way through, it became a picture and an example of what hell would ultimately be like. In fact, Jesus here quotes from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24. He says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, it's a perfect picture of what Gehenna was and what ultimate hell and the judgment of God would be on all who refuse to repent and receive the grace that is found through Jesus Christ. Those who would continue to cling to to, to their sin and their sinful lifestyles, that would be the end for them. Now, understand the point that Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is not just trying to preach some kind or teach some eschatological prophecy, some end time prophecy, and just let us know what's going to happen there. He teaches about what's going to happen so that it would impact us now. He gives us a picture of the future so that we could do something about it so that that is not our future. And so that's why he's telling this to begin with. He's calling us to do something radical. He's calling us to cut off, suggest the cutting off harmful, sinful practices. It's supposed to be done immediately and decisively. You're not supposed to play with sin. You're not supposed to dilly-dally with sin. But see, here's what happens. There are some who are lost here. You're not born again. You've never repented of your sins and placed your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's, that's obvious. Every church has it. But here's what you're doing. This is what you're feeling. I, I, I can't give up. People will say to me, you've probably heard it before, do I have to stop living with this person who's not my spouse in order for me to be saved, to come to faith in Christ? How do I answer that? Yes. Do I have to give up my pursuit of pornography and all these things in order to be able to be saved? Yes. Now, let me explain something. I said pursuit of. 
This doesn't mean that when you're saved and you're saved by God's grace, that you don't struggle with sin. Every single day I struggle with sin. Every single day I fight against sin. Do you fight against sin? But the key of knowing that you're in the faith is the fight. It's the fight of the sin. There may be some sins until the day that you die that you're plagued with, but you're fighting against it. You don't want to do it. And the spirit that is within you empowers you to be able to overcome that. It's not just with your own might. So if you're a lost person, you sit there and say, listen, but I'm pursuing, I'm pursuing money right now. That's my life. I don't have time for Jesus. What good is your money going to do in hell? But I, but, but I don't want to turn from sexual fulfillment. I want Jesus and this. But what good is sexual fulfillment in hell? That's Jesus' point. Do you see it? And for the believer, what is he saying for the believer? Very clearly, he's saying, hey guys, guess what? When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it is a radical call to cut yourself off from sin. Do you, get, do you hear what he's saying? It's a radical call. Cut it off. It's not easy believism. I believe in Jesus. I believe all the truth and I'll continue to live a life of sin. No, it's cut it off. And every true believer that's truly saved comes and says, God, I don't want to sin anymore. I don't want, I don't want this sinful life anymore. It's not just get me out of hell. It's like, I don't want anything that's opposite of you in your glory. And so they push that all to the side. And here's what happens. They come. I've been, I've been a believer for 30 years. And let me tell you what happens. At that time, I was sincere. God, forgive me of this sin. I want nothing to do with it. But God continues in my life for 30 years to consistently highlight sin in my life that I never knew. And so the call is the same. You know what he's saying to Mike? Cut it off. Get rid of it. I mean, I'm to the point, I'm nothing but a stub. You, you understand what I'm saying? God, I got nothing else to cut off. There's more, he says, cut it off. And so in your life, that's the process of that believer coming and, and, and turn from that sin and repent of that sin. And that is that process of sanctification of where Jesus is leading us. But I want you to notice something. Notice this. This is an act. This is a personal act. Did you notice that he says, your hand, your foot, your eye? Only you can do it. Only you can make the decision today to repent from it and turn from it. I can't make the decision for you. The elders can't make the decision for you. Your spouse can't make the decision for you. Your parents can't make the decision for you. It has to be a personal decision. I'm going to lop this off. I'm going to stop today. Then what? Well, it's painful. I've never chopped off a hand before, but I can imagine that it hurts. A foot, I can imagine that it hurts. An eye, don't mess with my eye. I don't like that. Don't mess with an eye gouging. It, it's got to hurt. And let me, can, can I tell you this? It hurts immensely, immensely when God reveals sin in my life and my flesh loves it ever so much. And I know that I have to cut it off. Sometimes, can, can I tell you how wicked my heart is sometimes? Sometimes because I read a lot and listen to other preachers and things like that, I'll hear something and I'm like, oh, I wish I hadn't heard that. Because now I have to do something about that. I can't just stop, I have to go. And so some of you are sitting here today and you're wondering, well, how do I know if I'm in the faith? I'm in sin right now. How do I respond to that same way as I did to the first point? How do you respond to what Jesus is saying? Do you lop it off or do you continue in sin? 
If you continue in sin and pursue sin, I'm not talking about struggling with it, but I'm talking about the pursuit of it, then guess what? Your end is hell. But if you seek to cut it off in faith in Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's proof and evidence once again, guess what? That you're in the faith, that you're a child of God. Now notice this last little bit in verse 49. He says, everyone will be salted with fire. Who? Everyone. Now, salted with fire, we understand fire is kind of the idea of turmoil, difficulty, hardships, all these sorts of things. But let me tell you where he's going at, because there's a lot of different uh, interpretations of this. But let me tell you where I feel like what this means in context. When he says salted with fire, my mind immediately goes to the old sacrificial system. Because it was sacrifices that were first salted, and then once they were salted, they were then consumed by fire, and there was nothing left. It burned until there was nothing left except for salt that was ultimately remaining. Now, what, do we, what does he mean by salt? What it means is this. He says, everyone will be salted by fire. In other words, every one of us, every one of us will experience uh, hardships, suffering, and trials. It's not only believers that will, but unbelievers that do. Would you agree with that? It's not just believers that suffer, but believers do experience suffering that a lost world knows nothing of. And the the suffering comes from pursuing Jesus Christ. And it is either persecution from others, or guess where the suffering comes? From the cutting off of the things that our flesh so dearly loves and desires. The world knows nothing of that. They know nothing of that. And so the Bible says in here, he's giving a sacrificial type language. In fact, it's the same thing that Paul will say in Romans chapter 1 and verse 12, 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, I think that there were kind of two parts to this idea of fire and going through these fiery trials. I think there's two parts to it. Number one... It demonstrates who we are. It separates. It separates the sheep from the goats. When you're going through fiery times, difficult times, uh, problems in life, those who are away from God, who are lost, you know what they do? They say, where is God? How can a good God, how can a loving God allow any of this to be able to happen? Their driven difficulty drives them away from God. You know what difficulty and suffering does to the true believer? It draws them to God. Draws him closer in. Go back and read James 1. Read Peter's writing on this. We shouldn't be shocked that these difficulties have come upon us. We understand that he uses those to draw and to make us perfect. James says, perfect, lacking nothing, James 1 says. He uses that in us. Here's the second thing that it does. It not only separates us and distinguishes who is for God and who is not, but the second thing is it, ref- it refines us. It burns all the impurities away. It takes those things away. It's God's way of making us into the likeness and image of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what that fire is. That's what that ultimately does. Now, notice this very next phrase. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty? And then he goes on and he says, have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. Now, what's all this deal with salt? Remember when we said when the sacrifice is burnt up, the only thing that is left is what? Ashes and salt. So how do we view salt through the scriptures? Well, we see it this way. He says, after the burning process, what it produces in us and the result of that is that we are salty. What did salt do in the first century? 
The salt preserved, first of all. It preserved things and kept them from spoiling. It kept them from rotting. He says, listen, the Christian life, when God brings you through these difficulties and these hardships and you're lopping off uh, these things that are not of God, that are sinful, that your flesh may love, but you're dying too, when you're doing all these things, he goes, guess what's happening? He goes, you're becoming a preservative in your community. I was thinking, and maybe you read this, I don't want to go into too much uh, graphic detail, but you've heard just the other day, Saturday I heard of it, about the young girl who was taken from the Walmart. You know that her demise, you know what happened to her, maybe go back and be able to read it. And here's, here's where I am with that. I see the depth of depravity and understand that apart from God's grace and mercy, I could have done the same exact thing had he not saved me. I understand the depth of my wickedness and that only through grace, through faith, that God has saved me. But here's what I keep saying. I'm saying, God, am I being a preservative? Am I helping to restrain evil in the community in which we live? Am I living that kind of life? Am I being the salt and light to a lost and dying world? But there's another thing that salt does. Salt also makes you thirsty. Now, I don't know this. I only know it because I've seen it on television. But on television, you have the bar scene. And you've got the peanuts, the salted peanuts. Jimmy knows, right? Is that right, Jimmy? Salted peanuts. You have the salted pretzels sitting over there, and the guys are eating, and you're like, man, why so much salt? Well, it makes you thirsty. That's why, like, after Thanksgiving or whatever it is, if, you, if, if somebody has the nerve to replace the turkey with a ham, right? You get the turkey, you get the ham, and about, you know, 6 o'clock at night, you're like, dude, I'm just so thirsty. I'm, I just got a drink, and you're waking up at 2 in the morning just trying to get water. Why? Because you just ate, like, 10 pounds of salt. It makes you thirsty. And he says here, he says, listen, he says, have salt in you. Let your life not only be a preservative, but let your life be something that causes other people to desire Christ. How do we do that? Well, through the two things that he's already told us to do. When you and I are concerned for one another, and we're doing all we can not to cause each other to fall into sin, the world looks at that and they say, dude, why don't you just go out and do this? Why don't you just do these things? And you sit back and say, I can't. Why? Because, bro, I don't want to cause anybody else to stumble. And they sit there and go, why are you living for other people? Live and let live. Live for yourself. Why are you living for somebody else? The world knows nothing of that kind of attitude. And you know what really makes Jesus, people thirst for Jesus, make him look infinitely valuable? Is when you and I, you're working, and your coworker comes up and says, hey, listen, I found out a way that we can make a ton of money. And you sit back and you say, well, how can we make that ton of money? And he sits there and says, all we have to do is kind of skirt the rules, kind of bend the rules a little bit here, and you and I are in the money. You sit back and say, I can't do it. I can't take that money. And for that unbeliever, he's completely confused on why you're doing that. Listen, money is his God. Why, wouldn't, why isn't money your God? Why wouldn't you do everything to be able to maintain and to be able to obtain our God? And then he sits back and he thinks to himself, there must be something far more valuable than that money. There must be something far more valuable than alcohol. There must be something far more valuable than drugs. Why isn't he, why isn't he doing them? I'm doing it because I want to please my God. Yeah, but, but this is what we live for. These are the greatest things in life. Money and, and, and sexual fulfillment and drugs and power. Why aren't you pursuing the same thing? Because, brother, I lopped those off long ago. In fear, 
that my heart and soul would continue to love them more than a holy God. And I'm telling you, he is infinitely greater than all that stuff. Lop it off. Cut it off. Jesus, we love you. We praise you for this morning. I do thank you for the power of your word.